Hey, the talkative thinker here. This time I want to talk about the altar call. When I was doing research into the altar call, I came across some very interesting information. And when I was doing research on a separate subject, I believe I made a connection. So starting with the altar call, a couple of years ago, I came across documentation that suggested a psychologist created the altar call for the sake of psychologically getting people to become members of the churches. Right. Um, I had lost that document and I was trying to do research or I was trying to find it again and do some more research into it. So I started off with the altar call that brought me to Charles Finney because Charles Finney is credited with creating the altar call and successfully using it to bring numerous members into the church and I say members like that again, because throughout the research, I started to see that the most important metric being recorded or or stated was members. Yet, I'm thinking to myself, in Christianity, wouldn't the most important wouldn't the most important metric be the number of people who accepted Christ into their lives? Right, because if You can be a member and not be saved. But anyway, continuing with the research here, find out that Charles Finney is a revivalist preacher um, and he's a Protestant. Okay, revivalist preachers were about exciting people, getting them worked up, right? Getting them shouting, screaming, you know, during their uh their preachings, right? Now, the Protestant side of him is significant here because during this time in the Protestant universities and colleges, mental philosophy and psychology was becoming a big thing, especially dealing with man's morals. So Charles Finney would definitely have been involved in that culture, would have been in the know of mental philosophy and psychology. Right. Still doesn't suggest that it um, was part of the altar call or whatnot. But digging a little more, I come across Charles Finney's lectures on revivals of religion. In this, uh, this lectures on revivals of religion is like a blueprint of his revivals, what he did that was successful, you know. And one of the things he mentions is it's necessary to awaken men to a sense of guilt and danger. And this is dealing with his altar call. So once again, I kind of felt some resistance there because why the need to bring about the emotion of guilt? Why do you need to bring the feeling of of danger for salvation, for coming to Christ, right? When Christ is all about love. So I saw a little contradiction there and it kind of made me think, well, you might want people to feel guilt and danger because those are some pretty strong emotions to... (laughs) 
to bring about a certain outcome, to make them do something that you want them to do. Okay. So at this point, reading through that, I'm definitely seeing the influence of psychology in the altar call. Okay. So what about this other half then about it just being for membership? If that, if that's so, why, why is, why do they want them to become members? Right. Over the more important metric, which is how many folks accepted Christ into their lives. So really didn't have an answer for that until I started doing research <clears throat> into this other subject. Uh, found some information that said the secret treaty of Verona enforced the Spanish Inquisition. So the Spanish Inquisition was set up by the Tribunal of the Holy Office, which is like Pope's church clergy, right? And this was set up to cleanse the land of all this other nonsense that was going on and to bring back the monarchy, right? They they wanted to bring back supreme rule to kings, queens, and popes. Well, the term brutal, the term bloody, it, it didn't go the way they wanted it to. But they did not stop there. They met up again, right? The tri- these tribunals, these holy offices, these popes, these church clergy met up again and <clears throat> pretty much took a different approach. In my opinion, I think it's something that comes from the book, The Art of War, or that philosophy which is which says the best way to control a group of people is just to withhold information from them. Because when they met back up, they said, look, we are going to honor monarchy and we are going to know that that is the true rule of the land. And we're going to give people government. They're going to think that's the true rule of the land and they will be none the wiser. This way, they can then make sure they keep their financial prowess, they can keep their power by making sure those governments then send them certain monies every year, okay? Furthermore, they will appoint princes within their jurisdictions and time out there for just one second because that brought up um, I remembered hearing jurisdictions, I believe, in the 13th or 14th Amendment, one of those two where it talks about our citizenship and how if you're a citizen, then you are obligated to follow the rules and regulations of your jurisdiction. So I'm like, hmm, this is sounding a little familiar there. But anyway, um, further uh, a little bit more into that, they state that If there's ever a problem, the princes need to report to the high contracting parties because that's what these tribunals and holy offices refer to themselves in this secret treaty of Verona. They said, bring that to the high contracting parties. We'll figure out what we'll agree amongst ourselves what needs to be done so we can all always stay on the same page and then we'll let you know what to do. Okay, so that's where I started to see a connection with why it's important to psychologically get people to become members of a church, right? 
So just follow me here for a second. You need to appoint a prince where you can pass your agenda down to people and have that agenda be accepted. The best place I can think of that to happen is the church. So many people revere the pastor that, you know, what he says will most likely unequivocally believe. So I was like, okay, and it makes sense to then have members because now you know the number of people who have accepted this psychological obligation to be a member, revere this pastor, and therefore accept the agenda that you pass down through him. You know the exact number now, which furthermore can give you the percentage of the population within a certain jurisdiction that you quote-unquote have control over. Now, just Expounding upon that and seeing things that have occurred in some mega churches and whatnot, I started thinking to myself, okay, I can see how some of these pastors, preachers, bishops, church, clergy, or whatnot get little, get like, rewards or incentives for this membership growth, right? During a time when we got kids displaced from their parents because of, de- of this deportation deal, right? They, they need hygiene. They need food. They need water, right? We have church clergy of a mega church buying his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini truck. Not trying to get a shelter together, not trying to get some food, some supplies or whatever together to help that situation. And just a little side note on that, you will notice that a lot with mega churches and real big events that occur into our community. You will hear them talk about it, but not really do anything. Okay. Another example. Believe there is a flood and. Church was closed up. They said, well, we can't let people in because it's flooded. Well, then comes out that the basement is only flooded and there's still room for 19,000 people like upstairs. Okay, the roads are messed up. They can't get through to the church to open it up. Okay, then pictures started coming out of, nah, somebody can get through these roads. Okay, well, we're going to wait. Uh, we have to wait till the shelters get Okay, so you mean to tell me all of this time people, members of this church need a dry, safe place to sleep and it's just excuse after excuse after excuse. Kind of sounds to me like you had to go to those high contracting parties first and get your next set of instructions of what to do. And the instructions that came down was, okay, we're going to have to go ahead and open up the doors of the church. But when you do so, make sure you have a service with a collection because we need to get our money. Now, I point all of this out and, and I share this connection with you, not to bash churches, not to bash church clergy, but 
to show you part of the game. So if you see this game, you don't be a part of it, right? The other side of this is we can see that those high contracting parties know that there's power of assembly in these churches. Now, they're currently using it for their benefit, capitalizing on that, right? But we, if we know the game, could then use that same power of assembly for ourselves and get our agenda and not this spoon-fed agenda, but get our true agenda out there. And that's why I share this. So I hope it gives you uh, something to think about. You know, if you're a researcher like me and like to look up things, you know, check out Charles Finney, uh, William James, um, and the Secret Treaty of Verona, which is available in the congressional records, you know, and just look at some of the stuff for yourself. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out to give this podcast a listen, because I know you could have been doing anything. <laughs> other than listening to me right now. So please stay tuned. Um, I'll have more content to come and I will eventually have um, messaging capabilities. So if you want to engage in the podcast and leave some comments, you'll be able to do so. Thank you and take care.